Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Catch your errors before your users do with Rollbar. If you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they have a special offer for you. Go to Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Sign up and integrate Rollbar to get $100 to donate to open source projects via Open Collective. Once again, Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Well, hello there, party people. It's your boy, Jared. I'm back. It's been a while. I'm your host with no coast. I'm your MC from Nebraska. It's Jared. Hi. How is everybody? Oh, I'm, I'm joined. Nebraska. Yeah, it had to rhyme. Nebraska doesn't actually rhyme. See, I had to mix it up. It was a remix because of my rap skills. very creative. Very, very creative. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we are here. We are happy. I am joined by a couple of regulars around here. Suze, you also haven't been around for a while. Say hi to everybody. I have not. It's really nice to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, last year got a little hectic, but I'm very happy to be back. Well, let's put 2018 behind us and uh, fully <laughs> enjoy what 2019 has to offer. For me, that is sickness, cold, snow, all sorts of terrible things. But hey, JS Party, so I'm happy now. K-Ball, what's up, man? Yo, yo, still cracking up about Nebraska. It's not for everyone, <laughs> I hear. That's right. That's right. We uh, we suck at advertising, so we're trying, <laughs> trying to change that. You know, one one JavaScript developer's heart at a time. Come to Nebraska. It's not so bad, except for the snow and the cold and the sickness. Okay, moving on. We have a great show lined up. Three awesome segments. We're going to try something new. We're going to do something we do quite often, which is pro tip time. But first, we want to try a new segment. So forgive us in advance if this sucks, but thank us in advance if this is awesome, because uh, it's a little thing we're calling ELA5, if you want to say it that way. Uh, and let me ELA5 the term. Uh, that stands for explain it like I'm five, which you've probably seen on popular social networks such as Reddit, this concept of taking difficult things, dumbing them down, although that's a condescension, simplifying them, and trying to explain them to somebody who is eh, five years old is the goal. Uh, I have a five-year-old, I'll tell you. These things probably will not make sense to him. That being said, we're going to try to elify each other and take a few things that uh, we're confused about or could use some explanation. And maybe the listeners could use some explanation and explain them to each other. Sound like fun, guys? Excellent. I also have a five-year-old, so I, I've planned my <laughs> explanation uh, for yours in terms that I think he might understand. We'll okay. See. Yeah. Is this like a literal, uh, how literal is this? Because if you tell me like I'm five, I will use literal 
you know, language for a five-year-old. Is that what we're doing? I think it would be fun to try that. Uh, okay. I know for a fact when it gets to the one that I'm going to try to explain, uh, I will not be doing that because there's just no possible way a five-year-old will understand this or that I could explain it to them. Anyway, Yeah, I think I set I would, you up for failure with that one. <laughs> I think so. I, but I would love for you to try. And I think that's the ultimate goal is to make it as simple as possible, but no simpler as our friend Albert Einstein said, or at least people say he said, uh, Einstein and who's the other person who gets all the quotes? Um, I don't know. There's like two people who get all the quotes online. Like everything coagulates to them. Every famous quote was either Einstein or one other person. Anyways, let's start off with mine because I came up with this crazy idea. And uh, one concept in JavaScript, which I do understand sometimes I forget how it works. I have to go look them up all the time is the idea of the bind function and the apply function. First of all, what do they do? What are they for? And then when do you use which one? I don't know. I can never figure these things out. Somebody explain right. it to me like I'm five. I got this. And I'm going to bring in some legit five-year-old things. So uh, I don't know if y'all have heard of these before, but a big popular thing in our household with the kids are these things called the Paw Patrol. The Paw Patrol is this set of puppies that... Uh, solve things. They, they go and solve problems out in the world. So you have like a police puppy and a fireman puppy and various other things. My five-year-old and actually especially my three-year-old are somewhat obsessed with these things. Now, the Paw Patrol have, each one of them has their vehicles. Their vehicles are things that can do things for them. So they might be able to fly. They might be able to go in the water, do things like that. So conceptually, we're going to take a function, uh, which is what bind and apply are going to interact with and map that in our heads to a vehicle. It's something that does something for us. Now, when we play with our Paw Patrols, uh, and my, my three-year-old always calls it the Paw Patrol, which makes me think, oh, where's the Mama Troll? But mm -hmm. the, when we play with our Paw Patrols, as they call them, we play with the vehicles in different ways. Sometimes you know, we want to make sure that the same puppy always is going to have their vehicle. So Chase is the police pup and he has his own vehicle and you know, they have the toys and some of the vehicles will fit different pups and some of them only fit one. So if we want to make sure that one of the pups always has the same vehicle, uh, we would bind it. Would bind is basically saying, attach this object, in this case, uh, the pup, to this function, this thing that's doing something, in this case, the vehicle, and they're always going to go together. So now I've got a conjoined thing. It is, you know, I'm moving the vehicle around, but it's always attached to that pup, that object. Apply, on the other hand, is when we've got a vehicle that can move around. So there's a, a vehicle uh, that they like that is this little helicopter. And technically, this vehicle was initially belonging to one pup, but my kids love to move it around. They love to have this vehicle like, okay, well, now Rocky's going to ride. Rocky is, I don't even know, one of the pups. I know all their names now, <laughs> believe me. Uh, the, the kids are obsessed. But Rocky's going to ride in the, the helicopter this time. Okay, this time it's going to be Sky. This time it's going to be uh, Marshall or what have you. Um, and so they change it up. And what that's doing is that's applying. That's saying, okay, I have this thing that does something for me. In this case, it's the helicopter vehicle. And I'm going to attach it to different objects or do it, you know, in this case, our objects are the pups at different times, depending on the need. So I'm going to apply the pup to that function, depending on which pup I want to use it for at the time. So that is my, explain it like you're five, assuming your five-year-old's like the Paw Patrol like my <laughs> five-year-old does, uh, 
explanation of bind and apply. Like explain it to to me like I'm five and I'm a huge fan of Paw Patrol. So, Aren't they uh, all? I mean, our neighbors are too, right? Like they get okay. together, they're like, okay, I have these Paw Patrols and you have those Paw Patrols. Somehow pop like the the puppies are each called a Paw Patrol when you're five or three. Um, and yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. Suze, does that help you out at all? Are these are these concepts that ever trip you up or have you been doing this long enough that they're ingrained into your psyche? I do still use them. Like I just used it. I used a bind the other day, actually, in a, in a unit test because I was having, I was trying to pass something in that needed to be a constructor and it was very confusing and I need to bind a different, anyway, it's not important, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I did actually use it and I knew how to use it, um, but I've never heard it described with Paw Patrol before. I think there's something about Paw Patrol that I don't understand fully in order to fully connect this analogy. I would have to agree. I think it, it I struggled because I was trying to understand Paw Patrol uh, versus trying to understand if the explanation was good. So, so I, I would give uh, you K-Ball an A plus for the effort. And definitely, <laughs> the, definitely the an, the analogy for children uh, is going to be 100% better than mine, which will not include any analogies, but uh, definitely an A for effort. But you're not five, Jared. Perhaps highlighting a limitation with explain it like I'm five is we don't actually want to explain it to a five-year-old. We want to explain it to an adult, but simplify it. Yes. Yes, exactly. So uh, one thing to know, we would love for listener participation. Uh, First of all, if you are listening live, come hang out in the Slack channel. Let us know if these are good, bad, or otherwise. Also, we have a new feature uh, on changeog.com where you can actually discuss the episodes on the website. Isn't it novel? Yes, commentary on our own website about the episode. So that is cool. Go find the JS Party page for this episode. Click discuss, uh, holler off questions, comments, whatever you want to say in there. Make sure it's kind and uplifting. But uh, join us in discussing these things on the website. So that'll be cool. Let's go to the next one. K-Ball, you got a question. Let's hear it. Yeah. What the heck are thunks? <laughs> I feel like I've used them by rote, particularly back when I was doing React stuff. You know, thunks are more of a thing uh, that people use when they're doing uh, reducers. And I've sort of used them by recipe a few times, but I don't feel like I grok what they actually are. So explain it to me like I'm five. I think I could probably take this one. So, Cable, you are the five-year-old. and I can do that. You... You live in a household and the household has to kind of manage everyday things, right? So, but the only thing you really care about is like what you're going to eat for dinner tonight, right? That's, that's all, that's all kids really care about, right? Is like, what are we having for dinner tonight? And so if you imagine that your dad is Redux because he is responsible for some of the state of a house, such as, you know, what are we actually having for dinner on what day? Let's say you go up to your dad and you say, Dad, I want pizza for dinner tonight. You know, um, I want you to make that happen. And your dad's job as Redux is basically to just go and find the dinner planner, write down pizza uh, in the the slot for tonight, and then basically put that on the fridge or give it back to you so that, you know, everyone in the house is aware of like what's happening for dinner tonight, right? So that would be how you would normally interact with Redux, um, aka your dad in order to be able to make changes or, you know, um, request that something in the house changes, uh, to your liking, especially. So if your dad's can only really write something down in the planner, you know, what happens if he needs to go and do some things before 
he can update that state or update the you know the, what the dinner plans are. So what what happens if you say, Dad, I want pizza, and he doesn't actually know if he has all the ingredients in the fridge to make pizza tonight. Well, because the only thing he can do is just kind of update things. Um, if he goes and checks the fridge or anything like that, then he could be potentially changing a whole bunch of other stuff. And that's really not allowed in Redux because you're not supposed to have side effects. And you can think of side effects as anything your dad has to do outside of the conversation of, Dad, I want pizza tonight, right? Um, and him actually putting down that in the plan. So if he has to go and check the fridge, which can be seen as an asynchronous thing because you actually have to wait for him to go and check before you are actually going to see whether or not, you know, the state is going to upchange, uh, the state is going to be changed and updated um, and that pizza is going to end up on the menu. You know, if there are no ingredients, then he might actually come back and update it and say, sorry, there's, there's going to be pasta tonight. So everyone should be aware that there's pasta. And so a thunk uh, or the Redux thunk is a library that gives your dad extra abilities so that he can go and do uh, asynchronous things. And then you wait a period of time, but you can trust that eventually, as a result of him checking that refrigerator, you will actually get that state propagating still through Redux. Okay. That's all I got. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I, I was super impressed by that explanation. I like, Go ahead, yeah, Cable. No, I, I like it. No, I'm, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. So, uh, especially because I, I, it's definitely a mind twist for me to not be the dad, but to be the kid. Uh, <laughs> Let's see. So the the thunk is essentially the it's just sort of like adding a capability. I can no longer just write something down. I can also go and check on things. Yeah, you can fetch something or um, do other things that might cause side effects, but still don't break the kind of um, pattern of, you know, Redux not mutating anything around it and just being able to return the same thing every time. So it just allows you to pass in a function instead of a state object for Redux to, to um, handle in the reducers. So can I ask some, some five-year-old questions, or, or at least uh, newbie questions about this? Yeah. So why is it called a thunk? I did actually try and find this out because I thought that it would be asked, um, and I'm not actually sure. I also okay. said the word ask like a five-year-old just then, too. I said asked. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we don't know. Um, is this a feature of Redux? Is this a general JavaScript thing? Where do these, this idea, where is this concept? Is it only inside of a Redux or maybe React? That's a really great question. So it's seen as middleware and it's generally okay. middleware that helps, um, that stands in between Redux. So essentially whenever you dispatch something, um, you know, via Redux, it sits in the middle. It basically says, is this an object that just got dispatched or is it a function? And if it's a function, I'm going to like intervene and run the function, um, which usually has something like an Ajax request or something asynchronous in there. Um, and then I'm going to then on behalf of that initial dispatch, I'm going to then um, compute the state based on that and then pass that on. So it's kind of, yeah, middleware is probably the best explanation for it. Okay. Pretty good. Cable, any other questions about thunks before we move on to the to my pathetic attempt to explain something? Is there some additional information conveyed by the word thunk beyond function? It's the noise that oh. happens when somebody runs into something. <laughs> Actually, I, one blog post described it as it's uh, 
it's the sound of your head hitting a wall trying to understand what a thunk is. Exactly. Which is <laughs> I think maybe that is a really good point. It's it's looking for functions or funk, and maybe they just call it thunk to be silly, but I actually couldn't find the origin of it for you. Like past test of think. Like I thunk this, but now I th- think something else. I mean, if you've if you've used React and you haven't had somebody installing something like Redux Thunk before, you will run into that very quickly where you're like, I want to update the state, but I need something to happen first that, you know, mm-hmm. is a function in order for me to know what that state should even be in the first place. It's just like a it's just it's like basically an output of just trying to abstract your code in the first place. I guess that's the last thing that I would add to that. Yeah. Okay. Honestly, I feel like I, I've been spoiled by Vue and Vuex because Vuex gives you most of what Redux does, but like conceptually, you just you have actions that can return promises, and you don't have to have this additional concept of a thunk. But it's I think it I think it's more the language that's the challenge than anything. Like if I think about it, it's like this is just adding the capability to have functions as a result of a React act or as a Redux action. That's probably that's simple. a very good point that you raise because Redux is not necessarily tied to React. Um, you know, you can use it with um, really anything you want, even without like some kind of single page application framework. But Vuex, uh, it's really good to hear the comparison between the two because you would mostly use Vuex for Vue specifically, right? And it seems like mm-hmm. what you said that is built in. Cool. I mean, I'm curious to hear, uh, Suze, what's your question? And I think I see it in the doc, but um, I'm hoping that Jared can give me a good answer because I don't know either. <laughs> yeah, so um, a big hot sort of new, not new-ish thing that I always see on Twitter all the time, and I'm not a front-end developer anymore, right? So I'm always trying to keep up with stuff. So it tends to be me trying to read this stuff out of context, and it's it's a lot harder for me to understand. And so there's this big thing called ReasonML. People are writing full-blown production applications in it. I underst- At first, I thought it was machine learning just because it has ML on the end, and so that really confused me. But it seems like it's something related to a camel. But it's still technically JavaScript. And so I just want to understand what is ReasonML? Is it a new language? Is it just like a, a superscript um, right. on top of JavaScript? Like, what is this? Right. So imagine that you're a five-year-old OCaml programmer, okay? <laughs> and you really like OCaml because it's, you know, decades old. Uh, it's, it's, it's battle-tested. It's multi-paradigm. You appreciate that. Because you can do object-oriented programming, you can do functional programming. It has a lot of uh, emphasis on functional programming with immutability and stuff like that, and that just really gets your gets you going. It's like you got Papa, you know, in your spare time, and then you got or Papa's. I don't know. I can't remember what that's called anymore. <laughs> Cable, uh, and then you got Ocaml, and you know, during during the day. And it sounds like animals. Kids like yeah, animals. Right? It's kind of like yeah. A maybe camel. a camel is your favorite animal. That's right. Oh, and you're thinking, I love OCaml, and uh, but my parents keep asking me for this awesome new front end for their uh, JSON API that they've been working on. And so <laughs> you think, if I could have like an OCaml-like thing, but in the front end with JavaScript in the mix, then that would be super cool. And so uh, maybe you find ReasonML, which is not a new language. It's just kind of a syntax and, it, and it's a tool chain, so it's kind of like a transpiler uh, or a compiler, if you will, bringing OCaml to uh, the JavaScript ecosystem. So you have access to all of the Yarn and NPM stuff. You have access to all of what OCaml provides. And uh, it's somewhat akin to, if you think of uh, not, I think not technically, but in philosophy, similar to 
what Elixir does to Erlang, I think Reason does to OCaml. So OCaml doesn't, it's not like a one-to-one, but there's like, they say there's about 80% of what OCaml semantics are, are just like straightforward maps over to modern JavaScript. And then the OCaml, or excuse me, the Reason team, which this is an open source project out of Facebook, and I, I believe they definitely are using it in production. So it's a serious project that's uh, pretty, that's production grade. They filled in a lot of the gaps and they have to decide like, how are they going to uh, fill in the last 20% and, and make it all work? The cool thing about it that I found, which five-year-olds love, is that uh, it can actually also compile to barebone assembly, iOS and Android, in addition to JavaScript. So it compiles to, you know, good looking interoperable JavaScript. It also compiles to stuff that OCaml would compile to. Interesting. This is actually very helpful. How would you compare this to something that I'm probably much more familiar with just because of my job, but also um, where I work, which is TypeScript? You know, TypeScript is, is this just like the OCaml version or OCaml take on TypeScript having like actual a, a type system, but also it adds terse functional programming syntax in there too. Is that sort of what I understand? In with regard to typing, for sure. So, you know, OCaml is a strongly typed language. And so you get the advantage of typing uh, by using reason. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if it means, I, I do not believe it's a superset of JavaScript such as TypeScript is, um, because I think it's a subset of JavaScript. But again, I am not an expert on this. And uh, this is a very complicated question that a five-year-old would not ask. So I don't appreciate it. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not 100% sure. I actually think this is cool enough that uh, we should get somebody from Reason on JS Party and we can uh, ask them all of our questions because there's a lot to this that uh, I know some people are excited about and other people are confused and, and potentially interested in. So maybe that's a future episode is like all about this technology. Yeah, I would love to talk to people about this because like I'm seeing even stuff like OCaml being run on embedded microcontrollers now, which is obviously like much more in my expertise. And I'm fascinated by this kind of like OCaml on X kind of thinking. So yeah, I would love to be part of that episode. I would have a lot of questions. Awesome. It looks like looking at it, it looks like uh, so TypeScript is kind of a superset of JavaScript. Whereas it looks like Reason is more of a let's compile OCaml yep. to other things, which include JavaScript, but may think also of it, include. Think of it more like Elm than like TypeScript in terms of, I guess, the, the way it works. Oh, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Raygun, who just launched their APM service. It was built with the developer and DevOps in mind. They're leading with first-class support for .NET apps, also available as an Azure app service, and have plans to support .NET Core, followed by Java and Ruby in the near future. After doing a ton of competitive research between the current APM providers, where Raygun APM excels is the level of detail they're surfacing. New Relic and App Dynamics, for example, are more business-oriented where Raygun has been built for developers and DevOps. The level of detail provided in the traces are amazing. The flame charts are awesome and allows you to actively solve problems and dramatically boost your team's efficiency when diagnosing problems. 
deep dive into root cause with automatic links back to source for an unbeatable issue resolution workflow. Learn more and get started at raygun.com slash APM. Once again, raygun.com slash APM. Next up, it's one of our favorite times of the day. It's pro tip time. And this is where we will share our pro tips. Sometimes it's because we are actual pros. Other times it's because we've done dumb things and you can learn from those dumb things that we have done. Maybe it's a life hack. Maybe it's a lesson learned. Uh, whatever it is, we have some tips for uh, everybody today and we are here to share them. So let's get right into it. Suze, you are first up and you said yours is dumb, but... We'll be the judge. Go ahead. Give us your pro tip. Okay. I'll try and keep this as short as possible because it was one of those like windy Sherlock Holmes kind of debugging stories. But the, the main point out of this was write cleanup scripts or write resources to clean up after yourself. If you do something temporary, that might bite you down the road. So if you make a change to your development environment and you know you only want it for a specific period of time, either create a script that'll automatically run on a cron job or something, or just even just set a calendar reminder for a certain day to like you know, decommission something because I had a pretty awful couple of months last year where, um, I, there is an IOT service that I use every single day and it is, uh, and then I configure that IOT service in the browser. It has its own, um, application that I log in and I make settings. And one day in September, I just logged in to do my normal stuff. And, uh, there was a certain part of the configuration on the page that just wouldn't load. And I would get all these errors and I just couldn't figure out what was going on. And so this is a pretty big productivity destroyer for me, given that, you know, I've just lost something that I use every day. And so I reached out to the support team. We spent weeks trying to figure it out and it seemed isolated to my computer. And I, I was starting to get really annoyed because I had a talk coming up in a couple of weeks and I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this on my laptop because no one else can reproduce it. It's only happening on my laptop. I'm going to have to probably just format my entire computer because, and then hope that that's going to fix everything because that's a pain to set everything back up again. And I was just not having a good time. So I was going through all of the JavaScript logs on this page, trying to do my own debugging while the support team was trying to replicate my issue. And I saw that there was one specific file and it was one of those lazy loaded JavaScript modules that just wouldn't come down and it would just time out every single time. And I was like, mm. why is it this specific thing? And it looked like it was tied to that specific uh, configuration component that loads on the page. So it seemed very component based. And so I was sort of tearing my hair out and one of my colleagues came into the room and we're sort of like going back and forth on what it could be. And they're like, do you mind if I just dump in your computer? And so they're running all of these different commands. And I was like, yeah, this is great to have a second set of eyes on it. And right as he's running a bunch of stuff, I went, ooh, ooh, what about Etsy hosts? What if I have something in there that's kind of blocking a specific you know, URL to pull that down? And he said, no, I already cutted that out. There's nothing actually in there. And so he jumped off the computer and then I just ran cat slash IC slash host just in case. And mm -hmm. sure enough, in July, so three months prior to September when stuff stopped working, uh, I actually remembered that I had agreed to beta test like a brand new kind of configuration setting. And because they didn't have a feature flag for it, they said the best 
the, the quickest thing for you to do is to just add this um, entry to your Etsy host. And when it goes to lazy load this module, it will pull it down from a different IP address. And they had hosted that just on, you know, a random IP address, you know, somewhere in a VM or something like that. And that's how they were right. actually doing it. So that was just not fun. And so it, what, it, what it actually happened was they were like, cool, so everyone tested this thing for us. We're going to release it to production. And then I completely forgot to remove that entry. So they must have kept that VM up or that service up for another three months, and then they've turned it off. And because it had been three months, there's no way that I remembered that I'd added that. And in fact, embarrassingly, when I first found this in my Etsy host, I flew into a rage, and I started subtweeting that company because I thought that their CLI tool had added that as an entry when I installed the CLI tool for the actual mm. IoT service. And so I didn't mention them by name, luckily, uh, but I very quickly deleted that very angry tweet when I figured out that it was actually me. So maybe you need uh, version control for your Etsy host so you can get blame on it and make sure, you know, who's changing things over time. And, and you know, get blame almost always points the finger right back at the... The one blaming, right? Yeah. I would love to have something like an Apple script that just even just watches, you know, that file and says, hey, yeah. like, you know, do you still want this in here or this has changed? Or I could have just honestly set a cron job just to delete it later. But yeah, because I was testing it for a week, I kind of just got distracted and started working on other stuff and totally forgot that I put that in there. Real quick, Suze, uh, for everybody who's maybe wondering what is Etsy host and what does it do? Why don't you just give that quick explanation so everybody understands what was going on there? Like we're five? how deep do you want me to go on this? This is a very big explanation. Just like yeah, just like we're five. No, just just not deep, uh, shallow. Okay, yeah. So so you know when you type like you know if you type a web address into your browser, for example, or if you're just trying to curl a certain um, domain name on the um, on the command line, there's a series of steps that you know your computer goes through to figure out like where exactly is this, and one of the locations that it changes is a file called Etsy host. And in that file, you can specify um, basically a domain such as, you know, like a lot of people do this to actually block social media on their computer for a period of time. Mm -hmm. So they'll write google.com and then immediately after that, you can actually um, then tell it to resolve to a specific IP um, as a result. And so this can also happen with things like if you're setting up a dev environment, instead of having to remember an IP address, you could just set up like, you know, suze.dev or something or, you know, company.dev. And so it's used in a lot of different ways, but really when it comes down to it, it's just um, one of the layers of um, trying to resolve domain names if your computer is actually requesting that on the network before it actually goes out to ask other things like your ISP or your router cache or even just like an actual DNS server. Is that mm -hmm. correct? Like someone correct me if that's wrong. No, that's right. It'll check there before it will try to resolve from somewhere else. Eventually it will use public DNS. Um, it yeah. would resolve to a local DNS server. So a lot of machines uh, will have a locally running DNS for caching purposes, stuff like that. You can also put entries in there if you're a particular hacker, but um, eventually it will go to public DNS. And if you have entries in your Etsy hosts for a domain, it will short circuit everything and just yes. whatever the IP address is in there, that's the one it's going to use no matter what, which is why exactly. you had so many issues. It was so very not lie fun. to your browser or anything else that accesses things via DNS. Exactly. Yeah. It's like lying to it's, your network stack. It is very good for blocking websites though. So when I stream, there are certain websites that if I go to those websites, they will accidentally dox me. Um, or if someone tries to share a link to try and get me to load a certain page um, mm -hmm. that will show private information about me. So I actually have a bunch of them blocked and that's scheduled to occur when I'm streaming. So that's actually one kind of cool like alternative use of an Etsy host file that probably nice. it wasn't intended for. So a small bit of uh, 
Jared trivia slash history back in the, I used to use Etsy house so much and so have so many different little reroutes in there that I back in like probably 08, 09, I wrote a Mac application called detours and its entire purpose was to provide a GUI for you to manage your Etsy hosts and all the redirects, which was nice because you always went to one place and saw what was in there. Um, and it was, it was my first Mac app and it was free on the Mac app store. And what did, it, did I actually get? Yeah, I got it on the store and then they changed all the rules and they sandboxed everything and I had to take it out of the store. And then they completely changed the way that the Mac worked and with regards to networking and the app quit working. And now it's just Aww. a piece of, it's a, it's a fig, fragment of my history, but uh, yes, I'm, I was a big fan of Etsy hosts, but uh, just like everybody else who has edited their Etsy hosts quite a bit, I've definitely forgot about it and shot myself in the foot like you did there. So common <laughs> mistake. Yes, create reminders or clean up scripts that automatically run for yourself. Just do yourself a favor and just automate yourself out of making mistakes, you know. That's awesome. That's, That's a great tip. tip. All right. All right, K-Ball, your turn. Pro tip. My turn. Okay. Uh, my pro tip has almost nothing to do with actual development, but it is something that is that I've been working on a lot over the last six months and is changing my life in many different ways. So I have always been a terrible planner. I'm a good improviser. I'm good at reacting to things on the fly. And I've been really bad at planning. And it became increasingly clear to me that that was holding me back in a number of ways. So I've been adopting a set of practices to get better at planning. And, you know, I still try to leave a lot of opportunity for serendipity. And I'm not trying to overplan my life, but just, you know, finding ways to uh, get better at, at, you know, planning ahead and getting things figured out. So I have two tips that I'm going to share associated with that. Um, one is use your calendar to schedule uh, planning time and to schedule other things. So like I used to only use my calendar essentially to schedule uh, meetings, right? Something where I have to invite someone else or, or things like that. Uh, but now I have all these recurring things where I'm like, I have an event for when I typically run. I run three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And Sure, I don't have to listen to that. I can change it around. I still have room for improvising. Oh, this thing's happening. Oh, I'm really deep in this. Oh, it's raining. I don't want to run. But having that in my calendar prompts me to actually do the thing that I said I'm going to do. And so I have, you know, when I'm running, when I'm working out, I have a, you know, reserved writing time. I have a weekly planning session that I do like Mondays at 8 a.m. and all these things. And it has just been incredible how much better I've gotten at actually following through on the things I want to do just with this simple thing of like make a spot for it in my calendar this is when I'm going to do it and I can change it around I don't it's not a rigid requirement but that that nudge that reminder has been incredibly helpful for me in terms of actually doing my writing actually doing recording video actually you know doing my workouts and my runs you know having a time for it and having it remind me uh, so that's part one of K-Ball's planning pro tips. Um, <laughs> like it. Part two um, is something that I did for the first time this year. And I, I sort of started this planning over the break, over the holidays. I was trying to sort of plan my goals and things for, for the year and various other things. Um, but what I did is I put together a Google spreadsheet that breaks down week by week along a number of different dimensions what some high-level goals are. And so like I have uh, for this week, um, you know, I have a, a goal for my client work. I have a goal for what I'm doing on sort of a training and courses side. I have a goal for what I'm doing, planning around travel and things like that. I have you know family and personal stuff. I have 
uh, you know, writing stuff. And once again, it's not like this is a, you have to do these things, but it gives me a place for when I'm thinking about, okay, you know, I'm trying to get this stuff. Here's how I'm going to, uh, it lets me plot out what I need to be doing to get to what I want to do. If something comes up and I'm like, oh, I need to deal with that, but now's not the right time. It gives me a place to put it um, that is kind of holistic. And then each week when I do my Monday morning strategy session, where I start is I go and I pull out my spreadsheet and I say, okay, what's on my agenda for this week? Okay, here's all the things I, I thought that I wanted to do. Are those still applicable? Yes. Okay, how do I schedule them into my week or what have you? So you know, these two tools together of calendaring things that are just for me to remind myself to do it. And having a big picture spreadsheet of like, here's what I'm trying to accomplish and what I think I kind of need to be doing at each time, you know, and both of these treating them as tools rather than dictation, like this has to happen. It's more like, this is a reminder. This is helping me keep track of it. Um, I feel like those two together have completely revolutionized how I'm thinking about and organizing my weeks. And I feel more on top of everything and I'm getting more done and it's, it's amazing. So those are my pro tips for life. Uh, use your calendar and spreadsheets are great. Totally agree. Um, I am someone who needs this kind of structure in my life in order to achieve those things. And I related to everything you just said. It feels amazing. I need to try these things because I'm not very good at that either. And uh, I therefore don't do very good at it. But I like how intentional you're getting with it. I do calendaring now better than I used to, mostly out of necessity and as a communication tool for others more than myself. But uh, I think uh, planning ahead and setting goals and then just like actually tracking them would be something that would uh, benefit me greatly. So good stuff. K-Ball, thank you. Okay, last pro tip. This one comes from me. Now, this is about dev flow. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? When you're really in the groove. Suze, you've been there. K-Ball? Oh, yeah. I was like, there last night. Isn't that awesome? The best, right? Like mm -hmm. you are, you feel good. Your mind is completely absorbed by whatever problem you're trying to solve. Uh, you know, you're making, you're coming up with solutions, things are good. And this is the place that developers love to get to and to stay there as long as possible. Right. So, yeah. um, we talk about these things like maker schedule, schedule versus manager schedule. There's a great Paul Graham essay and it resonates with us because as a maker or as a creator or coder, whatever you are, as a problem solver, we need long blocks of uninterrupted time to get to a place of flow. And the longer we stay there, the more productive that we are. So these are things that we desire. Um, however, at a certain point, you're going to get disrupted, right? You're going to, your work will be interrupted. Maybe it's a meeting, maybe it's a phone call. We try to avoid these things if possible, or at least time box them so that they all happen at a certain time and we can have longer blocks of programming time. But Hey, you also have the end of the day, right? You have the Friday afternoon, the work week is over. The session is over. How do you retain that dev flow or how do you get back up to speed as quickly as possible? when you return to your work during the next session. And uh, I have a couple of ways to do this. It's funny, I actually stumbled upon this on my own blog. I wrote about this all the way back in 2011 and uh, recently brought it back to life and put it on Dev2 just to see if it would get some more traction there. So three ways to, to do this. Uh, the first one is the one I like the least, and that's to like literally leave yourself a note, okay? So like you're ready to leave for the day, you know, write down what it was that you were working on, what you were thinking, what you were stuck on, et cetera. Don't try to make it too long because you probably won't do it, but leave a note, come back the next time you're ready to code, read your notes. Okay. So the problem with that one is, is like super, uh, forward thinking and like requires habitual consistency, uh, which I usually fail at. So that one doesn't work that great, but if you are a note taker already, 
maybe you're trying this, read, read yourself a note and come back to it and uh, read, read where you were. Now, another one which I think is a little bit easier, if you are a test writer, if you don't write automated tests, then you can't use this tip, but uh, leave some tests failing at the end of the day. At least one, maybe a couple. Whatever it is that you're currently working on, leave it in a state where maybe you just wrote the test and you didn't write the application code yet. And so when you come back, you run your test suite, you see what's failing, and uh, obviously you can pick up right where you left off. It will help you jog your memory of, hey, what was I actually working on yesterday? The third one, and the one that I still use to this day, like I said, I wrote this back in 2011, and of these three tips, the, the third one, I still use pretty much on a daily basis, which is just to leave certain code changes uh, uncommitted or unstaged even in Git. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when I come back, I can just look at Git. That's what I do. I say, okay, we're, we're Git status. I can see these three files are edited, right? I have a function that's defined, but there's no body to the function. So nothing's been checked in. And everything that I was working on, it helps... Uh, that context kind of just rushed back into my brain and it helps me get back to that place of being, okay, this is exactly where I was so I can get in the flow a bit faster. So three ways you can do it. I like the, the dirty Git uh, stage because it's the easiest. Like basically you just, you, you kind of limp into the, to the end of your day. You're like, oh, I'm not going to do this commit. I'm just going to stop, which is nice. Um, and then also you can leave a test suite failing. This requires a little bit more effort or you can write yourself a note, but uh, the easiest is usually the one that we can create a habit out of. And so give it a try. If you're having a hard time getting back into the groove after your uh, previous session ends, leave some changes uncommitted. And when you come back, always make that the first thing you do. Check your Git status, see what's been edited but not committed and pick up from there. I think that definitely works for short-term breaks. I've had that bite me. Um, and if you watched my stream recently, actually, I, I um, went into a repo because someone opened an issue on it. And I think like maybe six months ago, I'd started working on a new feature and then probably mm. dropped it because there was like a bug on a different repo. I'd, my problem is that I maintain too much open source. That's actually what the problem is here. And so I went back in and I'm just, I have this dirty state in Git. And I basically always say on my stream, oh, what mess have I left myself this time? What is all this garbage? <laughs> and, you know, I'll run like a Git diff and I'm like, what even is this? I don't understand. Yeah. So I'll end up doing like Git checkout dash B, what on earth was I working on? Um, you know, and then I will basically like move it all over, commit it, write WTF as the commit message. <laughs> And then switch back to master and actually like right. solve the issue and then come back and start doing some Sherlock Holmes stuff. I think, I think in that case, if you do have long periods of time, which is totally not what you're even talking about. So I apologize. Um, what I would do is, is commit a WIP um, yep. commit message, but then on the second, third, fourth, fifth line, actually write a detailed explanation of what you were doing, which I guess is kind of a combination of the second and the third. No, wait, or the, the first, first and the, or the third. Yeah, the yeah, leaving yourself a third. note. Yeah, I was no, absolutely. Like, I actually find that I do that as well, especially over the weekend, or I know if I'm switching projects for a few days or something, is I'll leave a whip uh, commit with just like, and I'm terrible at note taking, so it's usually like a sentence of like, "Hey, this is what you're doing," and just so it's not left in a dirty state. But mostly, I'm thinking of like overnight or like you know maybe even over the lunch break because yeah, you totally, can, you can lose your flow over lunch as well. Okay, well, you're gonna say something? Oh yeah, um, I basically use what Sue's described, except. I do pretty much all of my development in branches, so it's never master that's dirty. It's always there's some other branch. Um, uh -huh. But yeah, then I'll do like a commit, and I'll just say like stash forward progress. And then what I can essentially do is then you do git reset head uh, 
what is it, carrot one. And that gets you to the, back to that exact dirty state that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll, I'll commit it so that I'm able to go back to a master branch or some other branch if, if there's a need. Um, but then when I want to get back to that, okay, just show me what it is with a git diff, then I can reset it. Very good. Well, those are your pro tips for today. This episode is brought to you by Gage. Gage is a free and open source test automation tool by ThoughtWorks with a goal of taking the pain out of test automation for acceptance tests. To help with this, Gage supports specifications and markdown, which are easy to read and easy to write. Reusable specifications to simplify your code, which makes refactoring easier and less code means less time maintaining your code. And finally, integration. Use Gage with your favorite tools and IDEs in the ecosystem of your choice, like Selenium and Sahi Pro, CI and CD tools like GoCD, Jenkins, Travis, and IDE support for Visual Studio, VS Code, IntelliJ, and more. Head to gage.org slash jsparty to learn more and give it a try. Once again, gage.org slash jsparty. And for our last discussion of this episode, we are going to point our spotlight on a specific project. So this is something that we like to do on a regular basis, you know, here at Changelog, one of our goals is to shine a light on open source that deserves it and help people get the word out about the cool stuff that they're building uh, in our space. And especially when they're giving that stuff away, uh, free as in beer, free as in Libre, whatever it is, we like to shine a spotlight. And so uh, here's an opportunity for us to look at a specific project, uh, tell you all what it's about, and then discuss it amongst ourselves. And the project that we picked for today is called the Fly CDN. So github.com slash superfly slash CDN. And this is a CDN just for developers. Run it locally, write tests, integrate into your de- deployment process, move fast, and maybe don't break things because gosh darn it, you're an adult. So says <laughs> their summary there. That's a great little summary. Um, Fly is something that I am somewhat familiar with. We did a show on Fly on the Changelog, which is the other pod, another podcast we do on this network, all about programmable infrastructure. Uh, Fly CDN, I think, is their new and shiny. And Cable, you brought this uh, up as a potential project spotlight. So uh, maybe give us your thoughts and why it was interesting to you. Yeah. So high level, this is a CDN. It's written in TypeScript, so I thought it was relevant to this audience um, and. The reason that I was really interested in this is it's starting to, or it's an example of uh, moving more and more application logic out to what's called the edge. Um, you know, edge applications, they do, uh, you know, each different cloud providers offering more and more ways to do this. You know, you have Lambda at edge, you have Cloudflare with their, you know, Cloudflare workers, things like that. And the the sort of concept here is like, what, how much work can we do in a distributed way that doesn't require any sort of centralized server so that we can actually push it out and have it happen very, very close to the consumer, to the user? Um, so for Fly CDN, um, it lets you essentially do a custom version of that. So like if you're using Lambda at Edge, they've got, oh, you can plug into you know, authentication using um, JSTs and, and do stuff like that. CDN, this lets you just kind of do whatever you want 
maybe I'm going to route things to different servers based on your, whatever your route is. Maybe I'm going to do some really smart caching that's smarter than a sort of standard CDN. Maybe I'm going to include authentication, um, whatever it happens to be. And the thing I think is interesting about it is where a lot of the edge application stuff has been platform specific and they do target their own like fly edge application runtime. This claims to work on anything that has an edge service worker implementation. So you can run it, you know, on the Cloudflare service workers. You could run it at Lambda at Edge. You could run it essentially anywhere and create your own customizable edge-based application. And like that just sounds pretty darn cool to me. And it's all in JavaScript or TypeScript. So anyone listening to this podcast, you probably have the skills to write your own edge application. So the applications on the edge, this is somewhat new marketing term or I don't know, industry term for, you know, we, we, we went cloud and now we're kind of saying like, now we're moving back to these edge devices or ed, think of it as edge nodes on a much larger network. This is uh, a term used by a lot of the big cloud providers. I know Microsoft uh, has been talking about the intelligent edge which is like instead of these dumb terminals that are reporting everything back to a central uh, cloud service where all the smarts are, let's put some of those smarts back into the edge. Let's make the edge intelligent. Um, Suze, I know as, as somebody who's involved in the Azure team, maybe this is something you can speak to as well in terms of like this terminology and what people are thinking of and why this is better than having all of the smarts cloud side. Yeah, I can definitely share some of that. So I come at... I come um, at edge computing from the IoT um, right. sort of side of things, especially in Azure. And so it's particularly useful for IoT because if you think of a whole bunch of devices out in the field, whether that's in a building, whether that's agricultural use or something like that, you would normally require every single one of those devices to have its own internet connection. So it either has somewhere that it has to connect from or it has to have some kind of SIM card in it or even just like Wi-Fi connection capability. What you can do instead is you can just have like one edge uh, device that sort of acts almost like a, it can be a gateway in a lot of cases. Um, and it can be doing a lot of that fielding um, of the telemetry coming in from the devices. So instead, the devices can all connect to this edge device. It's responsible for authenticating um, and making sure those devices are legit and they're allowed to connect. It can be passing telemetry back up to the cloud, and it's it's the only one responsible for having to do that. Uh, it can deal with things like internet connectivity. So it can start buffering telemetry and things like that. Um, and then when it gets back online, it can then start pushing them up. Um, and it can also do things like run machine learning, like like you said, run extra processing. So it can either run machine learning um, down on the edge, which means that you have a faster response time because you're not right. waiting for it to come back from the cloud. And the other side of things too is you can be filtering that information. And so instead of having to rely on those other devices which have much smaller, less powerful processing power, you can have this intermediate device, uh, which is, again, like the reason why I talk about it from the IoT perspective is you can already see how much that's changed the IoT game and just made a lot of this infrastructure much better as a result. It's interesting how we kind of, as an industry, we move in these different waves or I guess like directions one way or the other. So like way back you had mainframes, right? And that's where all your smarts were. And then you connected to a mainframe from a dumb terminal, you know? And then eventually it was like, well, why are we making these terminals so dumb? We now have uh, the PC revolution and we have the ability to have, instead of thin clients, we can have thick clients, right? And so now our smarts are, are there. And then it was like, well, 
you know, what we really need is instead of having a centralized mainframe or a server locally hosted is let's move the server up to a cloud or, you know, a abstracted away infrastructure. And we can connect to that with these thin clients, right? These dumb devices, which is at the beginning of the IOT was like, this thing basically is a sensor and a network stack, right? And it's mm -hmm, reporting everything exactly. back up to some centralized service and all of the algorithms and all of the smarts are there. And that was a movement. And then it was swings back in the other direction. And it's like, well, it, that's good, but it could be better because now we can have these stronger chips or stronger, more powerful chips, more RAM. Like it's cheap now to make these thin clients smarter and we can do things locally and we don't have to send everything back to a server, which has privacy implications. It has speed implications. And so it's kind of this swing back and forth. And I just wonder if it's just going to perpetually swing, if we're going to find a sweet spot. I wonder if you guys have thoughts on that. Well, I feel like a lot of that has been driven by hardware advancement. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the day to get enough power to do anything interesting, you had to have something really expensive. So it was centralized and then processors got cheaper, whatever, whatever. You have thicker clients. Um, and then we say, okay, now we're dealing with mobile phones and, and IOT devices. And so suddenly processors, it's hard to get enough out there because of battery and, and what have you. So we swing back to centralized. Um, and now there's, you know, when we talk about edge, I think there's, there is a clarification to be made because it, I think you can talk about edge in terms of, I have an edge device that's actually sitting there, or this could still be in the cloud, but it's on servers that is, are distributed worldwide. Um, and you're pushing it out rather than having a centralized server. It's got many copies that, you know, so you just get whatever's closest to you. Right. Um, but I think, you know, there are two things that lead me to believe that we're going to want, that edge is something that we're going to really want to do on an ongoing basis. So number one is the fact that we are getting closer and closer to sort of a, I won't say a steady state, but like the, the speed of hardware improvement is slowing down. And so I think we're not going to get too many more of those cycles going through there. Uh, but then the other thing is that we, you know, the, the speed of light is always going to be a problem. And it's something that's going to continue to be a problem. And that's not something that gets fixed by hardware. Um, so, you know, early days of the internet, most of the people using the internet are all in a relatively small place, say lots of North America. Um, mm -hmm. These days, you have, what is it? with smartphones, three, four billion people online all over the, the world. And still a lot of that centralized hosting is happening in North America. Um, that means that for all those extra, you know, 3.5 out of 4 billion people who are not located in North America, stuff is super slow. And so figuring out ways that we can distribute and have things happen close to folks and Edge is not the only way to do that. You know, there's some really interesting things in uh, Google and, and a lot of these cloud providers where you can you know, run federated networks across and they have communication and they have ways to maintain consistency. But Edge is, I think, one of the biggest ways that we can start to bring that speed of light latency down for at least the vast majority of cases. Like, I think, you know, it is not infeasible to see a situation where the only things that have to go back to the central service are when we're actually updating stuff and every single read can happen at edge because if you you know use cryptographic authentication and includes your permissions in in your token like JSTs do 
Like you could do authentication and determine what somebody is allowed to read. So you could essentially store copies of any sort of data out at the edge. And if you have reasonable cache invalidation and you've got stuff, like we could see a situation where you only ever go back to the centralized service when something is being updated. And even that could happen asynchronously for many cases. So we could end up in a situation where you know, for the vast majority of users, most of what they're fetching is coming from something that's very close to them. And that's, that's mm-hmm. an incredibly powerful possibility for extending you know, the amazingness that is the internet that is right now mostly hosted in North America and making it accessible to folks worldwide. So in terms of edge applications with regard to that geographic distribution, a CDN is like the epitome or the, the quintessential edge application, right? Because an entire point of a content delivery network is to move the content geographically, you know, physically closer to the users. And so, uh, you know, we have CDNs that are a thing. We have uh, CDN providers, change logs providers fastly. And they, I mean, if you think about them, they're basically one big uh, mesh network <laughs> where they have all these different edges, right? They call them POPs, points of presence, but those are basically servers that are geographically located in regions where they can serve content very quickly. Like you said, speed of light's not changing, so there's just no possible way that you could serve a request faster from New York City over to uh, London than if you have a server that's located in the UK. It's just going to be faster. And so it's cool that we are giving with FlyCDN and, and this, this really softwareification of these things is that really it's allowing regular old developers like us to maybe build these CDNs right into our application and rely upon the bigger clouds that already have all those different uh, distributed servers to run them on different edges around the world. I think CDNs, you said they're the epitome of an edge application. I actually would would change that slightly. I say they are gen zero of an edge application. They're the stupidest possible edge application because they're literally just hosting content, no logic. And that was the easiest well, thing to do, and that's what we did first. And now we can start layering in more logic and more uh, functionality that is not just hosting content and get to Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3, where we're doing very interesting things out on the edge. Well, well what we find is that the CDNs are becoming programmable. So maybe you argue that turns them into something different that they aren't now, or they just learn new capabilities. Um, but either way, I agree with you that just serving an asset, uh, an image, geographically located is definitely the stupidest let's just say the simplest uh form of these things and then eventually as they become programmable which is what a lot of these services are trying to do then we start to see more capabilities Suze, you were going to say something yeah it actually folds really nicely into that last comment which is uh from again from an iot perspective uh we even have services um in azure such as the device provisioning service where you know, every single device that comes off the factory floor is programmed with this one phone number that it phones home to. But once it's phoned home to that, that um, that provisioning service can figure out, okay, well, where is this device located? Where is the, the nearest possible um, server for it to now um, have as its home base? Because obviously this provisioning service is just really querying that for it. Then it can then tell the device, okay, well, based on your geographic region or based on like all of the different responses or based on the fact that this... Um, service is not at capacity, so you can register yourself to it. We would recommend that from now on you just phone this service here. 
And so that's where you sort of start bringing the logic in so that it it's able to even understand like where it should be routing to in the first place, um, rather than having to do this kind of round robin of trying to ping to find where it should be finding it in the first place. You know, you can do it as just the first setup. And as long as that device is assumed to always be in a very similar location from then on, then you've actually solved that problem. Very cool. Well, check out Superfly slash CDN. Of course, all links for things discussed on this show are in the show notes. So open up your podcast app, click there. If you're on the website, hey, you're staring at them. Go ahead and click through. Check these things out. Uh, definitely interesting times and interesting advancements and in what we can do. They democratize it. Uh, dem- uh, I'll forget that word. You know what I'm talking about. Things are getting to more people <laughs> and uh, and we're bringing the, the good cookies down to the shelves where the kids can reach them. And by the kids, I mean us as we explain things to each other. Like we're five. Hey, that's our show for today. <laughs> we'll see y'all next week. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. See ya. All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. We're just going to have a podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at Changelaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash Changelaw. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at Changelaw.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. I'm Tim Smith, and my show Away From Keyboard explores the human side of creative work. You'll hear stories sometimes deeply personal about the triumphs and struggles of doing what you love. I got really depressed last year. And the reason it was so hard is because basically everything culminated at once. All these things I'd been avoiding, all these things I'd swept under the rug, they all came out at once. New episodes premiere every other Wednesday. Find the show at changelog.com slash AFK or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm trying to develop a, an outro tagline for myself, which is closing time. Yeah. Beginnings and good job, K-Ball. You're on it. I, I <laughs> caught your reference. I'm all over that. I know. Okay, I'll stop.